uh, going on what Christy said about Christmas Eve services, uh, the reason we are doing it outside is my wife works at the hospital and she says, you know, rent about the end of December is when you kind of get next waves. And so there may be another COVID wave that comes through that's stronger going towards the end of December. And there are a lot of people who are not comfortable in a room together. And outside, you can wear a mask or not wear a mask. If you don't wear a mask, don't judge people that do. Uh, but outside, people can come that wouldn't feel comfortable inside. So again, we're going to do one service where we all get together outside and worship God on Christmas Eve together. Hope it's going to be a lot of fun. Uh, as she said, come at 6 or maybe a little bit earlier. Crave Donuts is going to be set up. You get hot chocolate and stuff like that. We're going to do this. The service is going to be a little more normal like we normally do it, but not as much as we normally normal. Like what's normal at Element? I don't know. I always, I always say, this Christmas Eve is different because every Christmas Eve is different. This Christmas Eve is normal like the one the year before. That's the most normal that we've been, I guess. Anyway, uh, just mark it on your calendar outdoors because we want everyone to feel like they could be comfortable coming to it. All right? That's why we're doing it out there. Whatever. Okay, hey, if you're new to Element, welcome. There are Bibles in the seat backs in front of you. If you don't own one, you can have one. If you forgot one, you can use one. There are sermon notes on the communion tables, communion tables throughout the room. They look like this. On the front, you're going to get the verses that we're going through today. On the upper left-hand side, you get a paragraph that reflects on what we're talking about today. Underneath that, you get five questions and prayers to take you through five days this week to reflect on what we talk about. On this side, you get a few questions to talk to your friends, your family, your gospel community about to reflect on what we talk about today. And on the back, you get the Psalm, Psalm 132. It is the longest of the Psalms of Ascent, so it takes up the entire section. It's like John Hancock riding on the Declaration of Independence. On the back, it takes up the entire thing, and that's why the verses are on the front. If you have a smart device, you can download an app called Uversion. You click on More and then Events in Uversion. We will come up by GPS in your smart device, and you will get sermon notes, verses, questions, announcements, everything that goes with today's message. My name is Aaron. I'm one of the pastors here. Why don't you stand with me for the reading of God's Word? This is Psalm 132, verses 1 through 5. It says, Remember, O Lord, in David's favor, all the hardships he endured, how he swore to the Lord and bowed to the mighty one of Jacob, I will not enter my house or get into my bed. I will not give sleep to my eyes or slumber to my eyelids until I find a place for the Lord, a dwelling place for the mighty one of Jacob. Let's pray. Father, this morning we ask that you would teach us what it means to be a people who live trusting you in ways that move to the places of obedience that we would walk in ways that glorify you, that we would find great freedom in how we trust you and live in the ways that you call us to. And so teach us today to listen to the words that you say and to worship you and how we listen and then how we begin to live out these words in our lives. Amen. Have a seat. All right, so we are going through this series called the Psalms or the Songs of Ascent. In the Old Testament, there's a book called Psalms. It collects 150 different songs or prayers, and Psalm 120 through 134 are known as the Songs or the Psalms of Ascent. These are songs and prayers that people in Israel would sing as they'd go up to Jerusalem to worship God at the temple. And so as we're going through them, we're looking at them in ways to understand discipleship. Each one of these steps that they would take and remind themselves, we're looking at that as how to live with God every single day in our lives, how we lovingly respond to what God has done. Now, last week, what I did is I talked to you about the 11 different ways of discipleship we've gone through so far. I gave you a little quiz, see who got them right or wrong. First service, I did this, and I said, you guys are so great, I should hand out candy. Someone gave me candy for second service, and it did not go well. 
As a matter of fact, it went, it went so bad that uh, I was like, this has not turned out how I hoped. And, and one of my friends said, this is exactly how I thought it would go. So <laughs> pretty bad. So what I'm going to do today is I'm just going to give you the rundown. And maybe week 15, the last week, I'll give you the quiz again to see how it goes. And maybe I'll think of some other way to, I don't know, pass out candy, do something if you get them right. So in our steps of discipleship in the journey, the first step of walking with God is repentance. The early church fathers said this, the, all the Christian life is to be one of repentance, returning to who God calls us to be, surrendering our lives, walking with him. And out of repentance then comes trust. We trust what God says over the lies of our culture and even the lies that we tell ourselves. We trust God's truth and his provision for us in the person of Jesus Christ. Out of repentance and trust, then comes worship. We worship God because He is the only one who is worthy of us our lives to. And then out of worship, that steps into what we call serving. We serve one another because God has first served us in saving us. And out of our service to one another comes our witness. Because as we serve one another, we naturally become witnesses in the world of what God has done in our lives and how he calls us to serve one another. In that witness, though, sometimes things get hard and difficult. And in those difficult places, we step into what is called steadfastness or being steadfast. And it's not because we never have questions or we don't have any doubts or never have any anxieties. We are steadfast because God is first steadfast over us. And so we walk into these places, maybe sometimes with fear, maybe sometimes with doubt, but we see that God is always faithful when we trust him through all that we go through, and that ultimately then leads to joy. It's joy comes as a byproduct of our relationship with God. And then out of that joy will come our work in the world, how we work and interact with those around us. That should be in a place of joy moving into work. And as we work, we become a people who are a blessing to those around us. Uh, we bless those because God has first blessed us with the ability to work. And we do this through whatever comes our way through perseverance because we know that God is for us. God is with us. God has called us to himself. And in that, then we develop a relationship with God. God in prayer, in prayer. Now, it's not that we haven't prayed any other steps of the journey, but here in this place, prayer specifically comes to now believing who God is, trusting Him so we are completely open and honest before Him. Now today, in the Song of Ascents, is week 13. And if you're very astute and have been paying attention, you might say, what happened to week 12? Because last week was week 11, and now we're week 13. Uh, what happened to week 12? Week 12 we're going to get to in two weeks. But suffice to say that week 12 is about humbleness. When we go to God in prayer and honesty about who we are, it comes about in humbleness. But we're going to cover that in two weeks. Out of that humbleness, though, we'll come to what we talk about today, and that is this word called obedience obedience. And I know when I say the word obedience, if you're an American, you're like, oh, how dare you tell me what to do? Because that's how we typically start. We hear the word obedience and we do not like it. But in the Bible, obedience is about responding and trusting who God is. It is why when we get to the place of talking about obedience, I'm doing it in week 13 or 12, however you want to count it. I'm doing it this week because I want to walk through all these other steps before we get to talking about it. So we understand obedience is a natural outplay of our lives. As I keep saying all these weeks, too often people who don't understand anything about the Bible, anything about the God of the Scriptures or about Christianity, they're the ones that tend to write all of our entertainment that we go when we watch on TV or go to movies and watch. And they mostly show followers of God as being dumb and not wanting anybody to question them or being stuck up or fearful and angry or all those things rolled together like the worst that humanity has to offer. But let me tell you, all those views of faith are wrong. 
We are called to be a people who see the glory and the majesty and the wonder of God, and that should affect how we live. It just should. We don't obey God so he doesn't smite us. We obey God because we trust that he really does know what's best for us, that he did make us and he cares for us and loves us. It's like computers, like these whole steps of discipleship, like computers. Computers run off what is called an operating system. If you're like, I don't know what this computer is. Well, if you have a phone, your phone's going to run off an operating system, like an Android, an iOS. Computers will run off Windows, Linux, whatever the newest Mac operating system that comes out every year. They change it on you. Mojave, Big Sur, Catalina, uh, Sierra. No, hi, Sierra. What, whatever you got next, it, it, it's coming. And when you boot into a computer, your computers are going to respond to you in the way that operating system puts the interface together. So if you you do Microsoft Word in Windows versus Microsoft Word on a Mac, they actually do interface a little bit differently. I used to run this thing called Parallels on my Mac, and I could put a Windows operating system and a Mac operating system on the same thing, and depending on what I needed, I would boot into the operating system I wanted. Now, this is kind of how Christianity is for many of us. We get up every single morning. You get the choice. What are you going to boot into? Am I going to boot into discipleship with God and trusting and walking with Him? Or I'm going to, I'm going to boot into my fears and my own self-doubts and all the things that make myself self-centered. Which one do I want to boot into? Now, the Apostle Paul calls it the, new man, the old man and the new man. You've got to boot into drive A or drive B. And this is going to then go into how we start to view our lives and the world around us. It's going to go to our views of God, our views of ourselves, our views of others, and a million other little things. We must be a people who see how God has revealed himself. And that's why we're taking all these steps through these places of discipleship. Like last week, Psalm 130 verse 4 says, If you, O Lord, should mark iniquities like mark sins, who would ever stand before you? And then it goes on and says, But with you there is forgiveness that you may be feared. Now, people who don't understand who God is, who boot into themselves, read that word feared, and they're like, oh, God wants us to be afraid of him. Well, we have to understand if you boot into the correct discipleship, understanding who God is, we trust him. We understand that statement's not word at all because the word fear, it has the connotation of deep respect and honoring. It means we are humbled and amazed, which means that word can actually lead to happiness and joy. See, the Christian self-image is this unique paradox between boldness and humility. We are bold because we are called children of God. God has brought us in, but we are humbled because God brings us in by no means of ourselves. It's solely by what He has done, His goodness, His love, His grace. We have nothing in ourselves. It's that God comes to us and loves us and brings us to Himself. So we are bold because we're children of God, but we're humble because it's God who rescues us. We know that we have sinned, and yet we are loved in spite of that because of God's great love for us. So you get to Psalm 132. It is, again, the longest of all the Psalms of ascent, and it refers to a promise that King David makes, then a promise that God himself himself makes. And I'm going to read this to you out of the message translation. Uh, The message translation, I do this because my impetus for these messages came out of a book called A Long Obedience in the Same Direction by Eugene Peterson, where he translated these Psalms of Ascent like a few decades ago into modern language so people would want to start praying them again. And again, the modern language is a few decades old, so it isn't as modern as we'd like it to be. But it was kind of a noble effort that he did. So out of A Long Obedience in the Same Direction, week 13, we actually get to that 
Obedience seems like a long time to get there, but this is Psalm 132 in his translation. Oh God, remember David, remember all his troubles and remember how he promised God, made a vow to the strong God of Jacob. I'm not going home. I'm not going to bed. I'm not going to sleep, not even take time to rest until I find a home for God, a house for the strong God of Jacob. Now, if you read through the scriptures, you will see that God does not dwell in houses made by men. And so when David says this, it's I'm going to build a temple where people can come and worship you. That's what he's saying. Not that he thinks God's presence could actually be fully stuck into a temple that he makes, but that people will come and worship God there. And he says this not because he has to, because he loves God. Verse 6. Remember how we got the news in Ephrathah, learned about it at Jar Meadows, which means fields of the woods, not that you care. We shouted, let's go to the shrine dedication. Let's worship at God's own footstool. And I'll explain what that means in just a moment. Verse eight, up God, enjoy your new place of quiet repose, you and your mighty covenant ark. And I'll explain what that means in just a moment. Get your priest all dressed up in justice. Prompt your worshipers to sing this prayer. Honor your servant, David. Don't disdain your anointed one. God gave David his word. He won't back out on his promise. One of your sons I will set on your throne if your sons stays true to my covenant and learn to live the way I teach them. Their sons will continue the line, always a son to sit on your throne. Yes, I, God, chose Zion, the place I wanted for my shrine. This will always be my home. This is what I want, and I'm here for good. I'll shower blessings on the pilgrims who come here and give supper to those who arrive hungry. I'll dress my priests in salvation clothes. The holy people will sing their hearts out. Oh, I'll make the place radiant for David. I'll fill it with light for my anointing. I'll dress his enemies in dirty rags, but I'll make his crown sparkle with splendor. <sighs> I know it's a long one. It's a long one. It's like, how long is this psalm? You got so pampered with those three and four verse psalms. I know. Now, there's a lot in the psalm, but suffice it to be taken down to its simplest terms. It's a reminder of God's goodness and promises made by David and then by God himself about what they would both do. Now, it looks at this thing called the ark. And if you're thinking, like Indiana Jones and Raiders of the Lost Ark, yes. That ark, not exactly the same, but that ark. And so this goes back to when God saves his people from slavery in Egypt, as most things in scripture goes back to that. And so when God brings them out, he takes them into a place of freedom. He takes them from slavery and freedom, from death and to life. They cross the Red Sea. They end up then wandering in this wilderness and they become this lonely wandering people. And God does something very astonishing. God says, I will be with you and I will travel with you. Now God does this because he loves them and, and us and it lets us see the character of God. The God of the universe who is confined by no one and no thing that does not dwell in houses made by human hands will travel in a mundane way with his people. Now, it's not that that is the only place that God is, but he will travel with them. So God tells his people, since they are living in tents, you need to build me a tent as well. And I will travel with you in that wilderness. I will inhabit that tent so they can come and worship and seek guidance and live with the surety of knowing that God is with them because he will stay in this tent. The tent is called a tabernacle. In John chapter 1, when Jesus comes, Christmas, he comes, it says that he came and tabernacled among us. It uses this word to say God came in flesh to live among us. Now, the first thing God has them construct, though, is not this tent, not the tabernacle. The first thing God has them construct is a box, and the box is called the ark. Yes, 
Where's the lost ark? The ark. Now, the ark is going to permanently house the tablets of the covenant, the Ten Commandments that God will give to Moses. But God has them make the ark first before the tent because it is the terms of the covenant that will give meaning to the entire tabernacle. It is the terms of the relationship that gives meaning to how they are going to live. And so the ark was not and is not a representation of God. The ark was never meant to be worshipped. It was not an image. It was to represent God's footstool from verse 7. Now, here's a picture of the ark. Okay, this not the ark because we don't know where it is and it melted people's face off in Indiana Jones, but we don't know where, no one knows where the ark really is at this point. Anyway, but this is a representation of it. Now, so the ark is not the thing on top. The ark is the box on the bottom overlaid with gold and molding and four rings to carry it around like you'd carry like a panaquin for a king. That's how they'd carry that around. Anyway, uh, it's not necessarily, again, the ark that was sacred. Remember this, but it was sacred by the sheer virtue of what it carried, which was... The, the terms of the covenant. Yeah, commandments, covenant, good. Covenant, all right. So uh, the ark needed a lid, and that's where the angels with their wings facing each other on top, that, that is the lid to the ark. Maybe it's like God's designing Tupperware for the first time. I don't know, you need a lid to go on top of it, still in the freshness of the covenant. Anyway, but this cover, when you translate that out of the original language, this cover is translated as mercy seat or atonement seat. It's a word called caparet, and it means to, to atone or, or make expiation. And so there are so many overtones to what, this mean, that, to what this is, it's hard to miss it. But anyway, God tells his people that it is above the mercy seat, above the mercy seat, that he will meet and speak with his people, that he will impart wisdom, and that he will talk to them concerning about what they are to do. I know this is a lot of background, but we are going somewhere. The imagery is supposed to represent God as a throne, and a footstool, and he will then speak to his people as Israel's king. But God never resided in the ark, in the box. God would speak from above the ark as if it was his footstool, but he never used the ark like a snail uses its shell to get around in, okay? But this is why the ark is important, housing the terms of the covenant, but it's also why it's so misunderstood by so many people, and even the Israelites themselves, that they started to say, oh, the ark is God. God resides in the box, in this place. And so everything got so messed up, as we still do today, when we misunderstand God. Now, open your Bibles to 1 Samuel chapter 4. That's on page 147 if you have an element Bible, page 147 in that. Uh, and I'm going to share you this story that takes place about the ark and disobedience in God, revealing who he is, that he's not stuck in a box, but what the box kind of represents. The God of the Bible, he is not a silent God that sits up in the heavens and waits for you to figure him out. He is the God who reveals himself. He speaks through the scriptures. He speaks through his spirit. And the God of the scripture is a God who's concerned about people and the best way for them to live which is kind of leading to the story I'm going to tell you. It's one of my favorites. I've told it to you before. Some of you may not have ever heard this, but it's such a great story about disobedience and God revealing who he is. So 1 Samuel 4, verse 1 starts like this. Now Israel went out to battle against the Philistines. They encamped at Ebenezer, and the Philistines encamped at Aphek. Now so the Israelites are fighting their ancient enemy, the Philistines, who are always there trying to take them out for almost as long as their kingdom existed. The Philistines had many advantages over the Israelites in terms of military. They had metal 
metallurgy, and so they had steel weapons they could fight with. As a matter of fact, in 1 Samuel 13, we are told that the Israelites had to go to the Philistines to get their farming equipment sharpened, their plows and their axes and their, and their sickles. And so what happens is they are again at war. The Philistines trying to take over Israel. Israel is trying to push them out. As a matter of fact, there are still people who call it Palestine today because it comes from the word for Philistine. And so another fights break out, one in a long succession of engagements. Both sides expect to win the engagement because both sides think that God is on their side. So glad we outgrew that. Anyway, verse 2. The Philistines drew up in a line against Israel, and when the battle spread, Israel was defeated before the Philistines, who killed about 4,000 men on the battlefield. Now, the Israelites, who actually do serve a real and living God, lose. Why? Why would God do that? That's the same question they want to know. Verse 3, And when the people came to the camp, the elders of Israel said, Why has the Lord defeated us today before the Philistines? It's not, why did the Philistines beat us? It's like, why did God allow this to happen? So that's a good question, right? Because they're seeing God as sovereign. But you will also see how they start to let these other cultures start to infect them and how they see God. Because they will get to the point where they say, oh, God must not actually see what happened. Why? Because God's stuck in that ark. And so he mustn't actually see what's taking place place with us. The, the reasoning is, well, we've got to go get God and, and bring him here. Like, like the, the real God is not lifting a finger because he doesn't see what's going on with them. They're forgetting that they serve a real God who allows many things in our lives we don't understand for his greater glory and to grow us. And I think maybe sometimes in America, when we look around and go, what's going on with this and these laws for that, better we get so irritated about stuff. I think God, many times for us, is prying our hands off of our idols by doing difficult things in our lives. Verse three, let us bring the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord here from Shiloh, that it may come among us and save us. What's gonna come and save them? The Ark, right? It may come among us and save us from the power of our enemies. The Israelites say, God's not seeing what's going on. Let's get that box we keep him in and bring him over here so we can actually see. Now, I don't mean to be sacrilegious with you at all, but it's kind of like this. God can see what's going on. Let's go and get him. God, do you see? Do you see what's going on, God? Wait, come out. Do you see, God? Do you see? This is what they're doing. Now, you have to understand this. They, God has been so faithful to his people, Right? God has done so many things for them. He, they cry out in slavery. God shows up, does all these miracles in Egypt. He brings them out to the Red Sea, parts the Red Sea, brings them across, gives them water from a rock, bread on the ground every morning. At one point, he will stop the sun in the sky. And they're like, he can't see what's going on. I, I can't believe it. We, we better go get that guy. This is crazy. Verse four. So the people sent to Shiloh and brought from there the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord of Hosts, who was enthroned on the cherubim. That's the two angels facing each other. And the two sons of Eli, Hophni and Phinehas, were there with the Ark of the Covenant of God. Eli is the high priest at the time. He is supposed to dispel stupid myths like God lives in a box. And his two sons, Hophni and Phinehas, are the ones who take it to the battlefield in disobedience to God. 
Again, the Israelites have turned the ark of God into an idol. In the next few verses, God will show that he's not like the gods of other nations. He's actually true and real. Verse 5, as soon as the ark of the covenant of the Lord came into the camp, all Israel gave a mighty shout so that the earth resounded. Okay, now, the Philistines are like, what is going on over there? We just killed 4,000 of them. Why are they throwing a party? Verse 6, and when the Philistines heard the noise of the shouting, they said, what does this great shouting in the camp of the Hebrews mean? And when they learned that the ark of the Lord had come to the camp, the Philistines were afraid, for they said, our God, a God has come into the camp. And they said, woe to us. That's literally the text. Woe to us for nothing like curious George has happened before. Oh my goodness. What are we going to do? Woe to us, who can deliver us from the power of these mighty gods? These are the gods who struck the Egyptians with every sort of plague in the wilderness. Now the Philistines, they serve gods who are deaf and mute and, and do not actually speak. And they begin to get frightened now because they think the Israelites just brought their most powerful weapon into the battle against them. Now in one sense, it's kind of amazing that God's deeds have spread to the ends of the known earth, right? They know what God did in bringing his people out of slavery in Egypt. But the Israelites and the Philistines both think that God has now just shown up. He was literally not there before this moment. Everyone has misunderstood God. Guys, we will never be a people who live in true and humble obedience if we are constantly placing God in a box and misunderstanding him and saying, this is how he has to act. His obedience comes out of understanding that God is faithful to his covenant, and we are a people who many times are not faithful at all. One lonely Philistine stands up in the middle of this. Verse 9, Take courage and be men, O Philistines, lest you become slaves to the Hebrews as they have been to you. Be men and fight. So they go to fight. I don't know if they're still afraid or not, but they go to fight. Verse 10, so the Philistines fought and Israel was defeated and they fled every man to his home. And there was a very great slaughter for 30,000 foot soldiers of Israel fell and the ark of God was captured and the two sons of Eli, Hophni and Phinehas died. And this is where God starts to make a point. They're to trust him and not a box. The Israelites are soundly defeated. The box that houses the terms of the covenant, the relationship with God is taken by the Philistines back to the Philistines' homeland. What God does now is he will start to clean house in Israel. The high priest, again, the guy who's supposed to dispel stupid myths like God lives in a box, he dies and his two sons die and God is paving a way for a prophet named Samuel, hence the title of the book, Samuel, right? Samuel to become the priest of God to the people to steer them back to understand who God really is, ways to honor him. God is destroying their idols, even the idol that they had made the ark of his covenant promises into to help them to truly worship him as he has been revealed. Guys, we cannot be obedient to a false god. And they were a people who were trying to be obedient to a false god. And so God is wiping that away. He's going to show who he truly is. Because God himself has not been defeated. He has not. He's allowing his people to be defeated to help them to understand him in a way they never would have if this tragedy never happened. And it seems like dark times for Israel. But God will work to rid his people of all the things that hold them in bondage, just like he does us. And many times that is not very comfortable. It is not. And the story though doesn't end there. We're 2,500 years removed from this. We're still here. God's still doing something. Now, 
The first place the Philistines take the Ark of God is into their main city and into the temple of Dagon, their Lord of the gods. And so they take the Ark of the Covenant and they, and they put it below Dagon, the chief of their gods, to show the Ark, that Israel's God is below our God. And so then they go to bed. And they come back the next morning. Their God named Dagon is on his face before the Ark of the Covenant of God. They're like, well, that's weird. So then what they do is they put Dagon back up and they put the Ark of God back there again. And then the next morning they come in again and Dagon is on his face again, but his head and his hands have now broken off. It's like, help, I've fallen and I can't get up. That, he's that guy, he, he can't get up. So then they're like, well, we've got to do something about this. And they move the Ark of God to a place called Ashdod. When the Ark of God gets to Ashdod, it says that people became infected with tumors. Now, tumors can be translated as many things. I know you're thinking Arnold Schwarzenegger, it is not the tumor. Okay, no, at what tumors translate, most scholars think is hemorrhoids. Okay, hemorrhoids. So it goes to Ashdod and everybody breaks out with hemorrhoids. If you don't know this, uh, people don't like hemorrhoids. All right, and also rats come to the town. So they get and they're like, so after Ashdod, they're like, okay, you know what? We got to get that out of here. Let's send the Ark to Gath. So the Ark goes to Gath. What happens in Gath? Everybody breaks out with hemorrhoids and a bunch of rats show up. Gath is like, we got to get that out of here. So they send it to a place called Ekron. It gets to Ekron. What do you think happens? Everybody gets the hemorrhoids and the rats show up. And it's like, oh, this goes on for seven months. And, and the Philistines are like, we've got the Ark of the Covenant of God. Who wants to have this in your city? And everybody's like, we don't want the Ark of God in our city. You understand why? Okay, just checking. 1 Samuel 6, verses 2 and 3. And the Philistines called, this is after seven months, by the way. And the Philistines called for the priests and the diviners and said, what shall we do with the ark of the Lord? Tell us with what we shall send it to its place, meaning send it back home. They said, if you send away the ark of God of Israel, do not send it empty, but by all means return him a guilt offering. Then you will be healed and it will be known to you why his hand does not turn away from you. So the Philistines take all this pleasure in capturing the ark, and yet now God returns it to the Israelites. It's like they've captured the ark. What are we going to do? It's gone. Oh, everything is over. And what happens? God himself is the one who returns it. God himself is the one who does it. So often we think we have to make this happen. And yes, there are lots of places in obedience. We walk with God where he calls us to go. But God gets done what he is going to get done. And he brings this ark back. With the return of the ark, they will send five gold moldings of their tumors. <laughs> so great. Uh, five gold moldings of, of the rats that also infected the, the city. So the ark returns to Israel. They send an offering. And I think we all get a good laugh in the process. Uh, but this is the idea. Discipleship, repentance, trust, worshiping God, seeing who he really is leads us to this place of obedience. We obey God because God does know what he is doing so much more than we do. Psalm 132, verses six and seven. Remember how we got the news in Ephrathah. Learned about it at Jar Meadows. We shouted, let's go to the shrine dedication. Let's worship at God's own footstool. God's own footstool is the ark. They rejoice when God brings his own ark back to his people again. God would speak from above the ark as if it was his footstool. 
Now, when the ark first came back, it actually got lost. It went from here to here, and then they found it again. And when they find it, David's like, this is going to be a place. I'm going to build a temple. You're going to speak. We're going to put the ark in there. Not that we want to worship the ark, but we're going to bring it to a temple that I'm making for you. This is going to be great. And they do this and tell these stories so their memories stay fresh about what God is doing. And this is why David makes promises to God. David desires to fulfill those promises to God, not because God is a capricious God, not because he's afraid God's going to give David the hemorrhoids, but because God is good and he is always steering his people towards greater faith and trust in him. David makes this promise, God, I'm gonna, I'm gonna build your house. And he gets the land and he gets all the, the stuff together to build it. And then God says, David, you're not gonna build it. Your son will build it. And David, in obedience, says, okay, okay, great. But then God makes some promises too. He says, I'll shower blessings on the pilgrims who come here and give supper to those who arrive hungry. I'll dress my priests in salvation clothes. The holy people will sing their hearts out. Oh, I'll make the place radiant for David. And there here's a break in the text right here. And then it says this, as if it's another line still relating, but it says, I'll fill it with light for my anointed. You know what the word anointed translates as? Messiah. Christ. That's what it translates as. It's God says, David, a descendant of yours will sit on the throne forever. David's descendants and David himself all broke the terms of the covenant. So what's going to happen? How will a son be obedient and sit on the throne forever? Well, Jesus comes. God in the flesh. Jesus lives the perfect life, fulfills all the terms of the covenant, and he rules and he reigns forever just as God promised. This psalm is meant to be a reminder of how obedience comes about. It comes about because God is first faithful to us. We are people who are to live and obey by the Holy Spirit's guiding because we understand how great and worthy God is. This is why all these steps of discipleship lead us to this place of obedience where it starts in repentance and trust and worship and serving and witness and steadfast and joy and work and blessing and perseverance and prayer and humbleness. Two weeks. And then obedience, right? All these steps go together. We're told in the scriptures that Jesus came. He fulfilled the terms of the covenant. He fulfilled the law. Everything we could not measure up to. He lived the perfect life in obedience for us. That is true. It is freeing, but there's even more because Jesus now takes us and we trust him and he imparts. He gives that obedience, that righteousness to us as a gift when we trust in him and we get to be returned to be image bearers of God again in the world. By Jesus dying and raising from the grave, it doesn't mean that God's character changes. This is why the scriptures are so big on that word that Americans hate called obedience. And I've told you this before, and I think it's really good to be repeated. Uh, John Orberg once gave two great reasons as a people to obey God. Number one is this. Obedience to God increases the freedom that matters most to human beings. Obedience to God increases the freedom that matters most to human beings. What he means by that is uh, freedom comes in two flavors, typically. There is freedom from external constraints. Nobody can tell me what to do. But then there's also a freedom for a freedom for living the life that God calls us to. What, our, what I think our hearts and our spirits and our souls long for, living the kind of life to be free so we could actually worship God as we were intended. The freedom that we typically lack is an internal freedom. And that lack of internal freedom is much more dehumanizing and much more tragic than any external constraints. How do we actually become free? We surrender all of our lives and our wills over to the one who actually fulfilled the terms of the covenant for us. We turn our lives over to someone who is greater than we are, over to Jesus. 
we recognize that there is an order in the way that we are designed. We are not the center of the universe. We are not the master of fate. We are, we are not God. There is a God, and it's not us. This is why the biblical writers make such a strong connection between God and freedom and discipleship and freedom and obedience and freedom. The psalm writer says, Psalm 119, verse 45, I will walk about in freedom, for I have sought out your precepts. You know what precepts translates as? Laws. So James 1.25, but the one who looks into the perfect law, the law of liberty, and perseveres, being no hearer of the word, but for, being no hearer who forgets, but a doer who acts, he'll be blessed in his doing. Guys, when we make our desires our God, we always end up in slavery. And when we submit our desires to God, we will always end in freedom. The freedom that matters most is the freedom that comes from actually obeying God in discipleship with Him. And secondly, we obey because God alone in all the universe is worth obeying. Only God Himself. If you think Christianity is just a straight jacket with a bunch of rules to hold you down like a lot of atheists do today, you will find ways to rebel. You just will. Christopher Hitchens, uh, who was the premier atheist in the world a few years ago until he died, wrote that if God were real, it would mean living eternally under a divine totalitarian despot, but worse, because at least you can die and get away from the totalitarian. But if God's real and you die, you can never, ever get away from God. See, that's not the God of the Bible. This is why the God of the Bible constantly has to reveal himself to us. Why? Because we're always placing him in a box, and we're always getting him wrong. We're saying, oh, this is what God has to be like because that's how I feel. That is not what God is like. Think about what God has actually done to bring us freedom as a people. These are the words that get spoken over us. Romans 8, 1 and 2. Therefore, there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus because through Christ Jesus, the law of the Spirit who gives life has set you free from the law of sin and death. The terms of the covenant brought sin because we can never measure up. They brought death because we sin. But through Christ, we are now given life. That's the reality of who God is. He takes away our condemnation. He takes away our shame in himself. He rescues us. He restores us. In Luke 22, verse 20, right before Jesus goes to the cross, as he's doing his last meal, he says, this is the new covenant in my blood. Why is it the new covenant? We broke the old one. <laughs> Everybody broke the old one. We couldn't measure up to the old one. And so what Jesus does, he fulfills it and he makes the new covenant in his blood. Our relationship with God is based on Christ's obedience, not ours. He died so we can live. The truth is that his death sets us free. And God intends for us to live in freedom. And God has done everything to make that possible. And it is only in that freedom that we'll be a people who live in true obedience because true obedience comes about by seeing who God is and honoring Him with all parts of our lives and wanting to live with and for Him in this world. What we have to understand is that the gospel is what brings about our true and unfettered obedience. Because laws will never bring about true unfettered obedience. Only the good news of the grace of the gospel will ever do that. Obedience is not meant to be this, this horrible, scary word. It's meant to be this loving response to all that God has done to bring us to himself. Because God is good. He is so much better than all the parameters of the boxes that we have stuck him in. God blows apart our boxes and is constantly showing us his goodness. And I think that we just refuse to believe it. 
because we so naturally want to just head back into places of legalism. If I do this and this and this, then God's got to love me. And God's like, trust in my son, my provision that I have made over you. Second week of our discipleship journey, trust in Jesus. And out of that comes the rest of our lives. It comes about in how we live and walk in these places of discipleship. I'm going to ask the band to come up. And as the band comes up, I'm going to invite you guys today to this place of communion like we do every week. And again, I want to acknowledge that communion in the midst of COVID is awkward and, and weird. I get it. Uh, you know, you get, a, you get a little cup with some bad grape juice and a cracker that makes you want to choke on it when you, when you eat it. I get it. I get it. But communion isn't what makes us holy. Communion isn't what makes us righteous. Communion is a reminder and a remembrance of what God did to bring us to himself. And that is why when you take communion, you break the cracker like Christ's body is broken for us, and you drink the grape juice as a reminder of Christ's blood that was shed for us, the new covenant in his blood. Because we can never measure up to the old one. And this is why Jesus lives the life he does to impart that righteousness to us as a gift, as we believe in him, by faith. And now we get to be a people who live in great freedom in the world. In the midst of that freedom, it should result in obedience to God, simply because he is good, the true God. You know, not all the legalism that people want to set up in and around your life, but what the scriptures actually teach and where God's spirit actually leads, the true and living God who leads us in true and living ways. That's the people we want to be, those who love and honor him because he has first loved and saved us. And if you guys need prayer this morning, grab Sarah at the Welcome Center. She'll connect you with somebody. If you've just been stuck in a rut of like legalism and thinking, oh, I've got to do these things and God's going to smite me if I don't or give me the hemorrhoids or, or whatever, you know, oh, this is, you know. Guys, we'd love to be able to pray with you and help you to understand the goodness of God that those who believe in Christ, there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. And in that great freedom that we get, we get to live in the hope that true life is then restored to us because of what he's done. And just like God tabernacled in the wilderness, just like God came and tabernacled in the person of Jesus Christ, we are told now that God's spirit lives in us and revives us. And so we get to be a people who live out in this world and display the goodness of a God who so graciously rescues us. Let's be those people who move to obedience because we understand how great and worthy God himself is. There's offering boxes next to all the doors, and we give because God has been so giving to us, what's so part of our worship. Giving is part of our obedience as well. And we invite you to grab those sermon notes and maybe go through those five days of questions this week and pray through those things and talk with your friends about you know, what's, in the, what's on the questions on the right side. And just think about the goodness and the faithfulness of God. How God is always faithful to us as a people. And he always brings us back to himself. And he is always good, all the time. And we, as a people, who are so often unfaithful, but this is why the terms of the covenant are found and fulfilled in the person of Jesus Christ. So we trust him for the terms of the new covenant. So we would walk with him in freedom that enables us to truly obey and honor him with our lives. Let's pray. Part of this morning, we ask that you would take us as a people and that you would Blow apart the boxes that we have put you in. And that we would begin to see who you truly are. And that all these steps of discipleship be a response to seeing who you truly are. 
our repentance and our trust and our worship and our serving, our witness, our joy, our work, our steadfastness, our perseverance, all these would come as a result of seeing what you have done, understanding your death for us, your resurrection bringing us life, you calling us to be yours, adopting us in as your children. And as we understand that, teach us not to make that about ourselves. But to be those who begin to display in this world who you are. That our obedience would be a natural result of what you are doing in us. That it wouldn't be a word that we fear, that we run from. It'd be a word that we can say, wow, we are able to do this simply because of God's strength and power in us. So teach us to see what you're truly calling us towards. Have us be people who are truly humble before you about who we are and who you are. And that we would then live lives of real obedience that come out of love, that come out of grace and an understanding of who you are. Teach us to truly be your people, living as your hands and feet and your ambassadors to this world as we represent who you are by how we live, that you would make us imitators of you as dearly loved children, and that the world would know you because of how your people live and honor you. We ask that in your son's good name. Amen. Now Mark's going to lower the blinds, and as he does, I want you to take a couple minutes and ask God to show you the places you placed him in a box. All the places you said, this is how God has to work. This is how God has to act. This is how, what God has to do. Have him show you where you've done that with him. Or maybe even show you the times that you've done that with God and God has just blown the walls off your box and you were so frustrated. Maybe even right now you get so frustrated with things in our culture and our country. You're like, God, uh, when God is most likely trying to blow the walls off the side of the boxes that we stick him in. And we say, God, show me who you are. Teach me to lay all myself at the foot of the cross to trust Christ with all that I am. And then teach me to worship you as you have actually revealed yourself. And then we live out our lives in obedience. It's not obedience to make God love us. It's obedience as a response to God's faithfulness to us. So let's be a people who say, God, blow apart my box, teach me where I've tried to stick you in this, and show me the truth of who you are. And teach me to live in this world in ways that are obedient to what you call me to, because it honors you.